Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we're grateful for your word. We're grateful for the wisdom that you provide us in your word. We're grateful that you haven't left us by ourselves to make some of the complex decisions that we face in life, Father. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Father. Lord, we ask that you would give us grace, that you would speak to us through your word, that as we hear from you in your word, that we would be free of the anxiety and the toil that comes with so many of the things that even now are weighing heavy on our heart that we have to think about. We ask that you would give us grace. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I invite you all to take your seats. Tim, can you hand me my water? Well, good morning. Once again, glad to have you all here with us today. If you're just with us, um, if this is your first time with us, again, like Tim said, we're glad that you're here. More than anything, we want to make sure that you get a chance to meet Jesus. So as we talk about him through this text, stick around at the end. And if you have questions about him more than anything, we want to make sure that you get to know this great Savior that we come to gather with, to worship and to praise and to hear about each week. So um, if it is your first time with us, uh, we started a brand new series three weeks ago in Proverbs. So we'll be here from now until the end of the year. And Proverbs is a book that's all about wisdom. Wisdom is just this, skill in living. As we live, we need skill to live. It's not just enough to be a good person. We've talked about this in the past few weeks. You can have good character and still make very bad choices that will mess up your life and the lives of everybody else around you. So we don't just need to be good people, good moral people. We need to have wisdom, and we need to have wisdom primarily for decision-making. That's really the umbrella of this whole book. It's going to be the umbrella of what we spend the next 13 weeks on, but it's really, Lord, give us wisdom when it comes to the question, what should I do? What should I do about my anger? What should I do about friendships? What should I do about my career? What should I do about sex? What should I do about money? The goal of today is to give you a grid for making decisions. Three steps that I think if we really take these and apply these, we can be confident that we make godly and good decisions. And the reason why we need a grid for decision making is because everybody in this room leans one of two ways when it comes to making decisions. Either you're hasty or impulsive or you're hesitant. You either dive headfirst and you make a lot of your decisions in life based on your instincts. You don't have a problem going with the flow. It seems like you don't have a problem trusting God because you're ready to just act and to step out. The problem is you can't make every decision in your life like that because some decisions are too complex to make quickly. If you're in here and you lean towards making hasty decisions, it's probably because you think that life is about what you can control. It's probably because deep down inside you fear missing an opportunity so you don't trust God enough to wait. You've got to dive head first and make sure that you don't miss it. 
Or if that's not you, you're probably somebody that's hesitant. And if you don't make the decisions on impulse or instincts, you're likely waiting until you have all the information. And you can't make every decision in your life waiting because if you do not make a decision, eventually time will make a decision for you. If the folks that are hasty fear that I'll miss out on something if I don't make the right call, folks that are hesitant fear that I'll make the wrong choice because I don't have all the information. And though it may seem like you trust God more because you wait, at the end of the day, that's not necessarily a sign that you trust God more. It could be that you just trust your own instincts. And and in order for your instincts to kick in, you just have to make sure you have all the right information. So you're never going to jump out in faith because you want to be sure that you jumped out in fact. And you know beyond a shadow of a doubt that when you decide, you're going to decide the right thing. At the end of the day, both of these sides lack a grid for decision-making. Both of these sides are just people that make decisions based on how they feel. If they feel they have all the info, or if they feel their intuition is on point, it's all about feelings. And so what I want to do through the book of Proverbs is I want to give you a grid. And so in your sheet, so you don't have to, or in your seat, so you don't have to flip back and forth, we made this nice little card for you. I can see all the type A folks in here eager because there are blanks that you get to fill in. Um, I promise that I'll give you all the words for those blanks. I just want to tell you, look, I'm confident that if we take this wisdom and we apply it, that you can walk out of here more confident in the decisions that you make and more comfortable resting in the ones that you've made. But in order for us to do that, we have to look at these three steps, what stands in the way of us getting it, uh, 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 doing these three steps, and then lastly, the answer. These steps, what stands in the way of these steps, and the solution to those steps. So let's start with the first one. The very first blank, very first thing is this. If you are ever going to make wise decisions, the first thing that you have to do is check yourself. The very first thing that you have to do is check yourself. In college, I was a marketing major, and one of the things that they told us was that uh, for the customer, perception is reality. So if you are a business, it doesn't matter who you think you are. It matters who Yelp thinks you are. So all of your work has to be based on what people perceive. If they perceive that you're not gracious, then that's reality and you have to work because if they have a negative perception of you, it's going to affect your real money that comes into the bank and you will not have any real money. While perception being reality works great for business, it is terrible for life and for decision-making. Perception is not reality, and everybody that lives like it is will end up ruining their lives, right? We see those first two on the page. That is not a typo. That is the exact same proverb in this book twice 
to drive home that point that anybody who does not have something that stands in between their desires and the decision that's made, if your desires and your decisions overlap at every point, then it says you're going to end up dead. Regardless of how safe and comfortable and sure that you are of that road, if you live your entire life only doing what you think is right or what seems to be right, it says the end of that pathway is death, right? And we've learned this, this lesson since we were kids when your parents would say things like, don't take candy from strangers, right? That the strange man that wants to give you candy, he seems like a nice enough guy, but he might not be that nice. He might be playing on the perception that you have to lead you down a road. If you make decisions based on the limited information that you have, God's word says that it's going to lead to destruction. What I mean is this. Uh, Everyone makes plans in faith. You either plan based on what you see and what you can perceive, Or you plan based on what somebody else says. So all the plans that you make are, I'm going to do this because I feel like it's the right thing. Or you'll say, though it seems like it's the right thing, I embrace the fact that there are limits to my wisdom. So I need to bring somebody else in. What this says is since we're all going to make a choice based on what somebody else thinks or says, just make sure that that somebody isn't you all the time. Here, look look, look at those next two. All a person's ways seem right to him, but the Lord weighs motives. One who isolates himself pursues selfish desire. He rebels against all wisdom. The Bible tells us to check ourselves because having peace It's not the same thing as being right. How many times have you heard somebody say, man, I'm really going to make this decision and I'm comfortable because I have peace about it. Just because you have peace doesn't mean that it's right. All that it means is that there's no inner conflict. So that could mean two things. One, it could mean that you're on the right path or it could mean that you're so self-deceived that you think that you're on the right path But it doesn't mean that you're on the right path. You can have peace while running away from wisdom. That's what this says. Jesus and Jonah both found themselves on boats in the midst of storms. Everybody else is freaking out and they're both sleeping. One had true peace. The other had false peace. Having peace doesn't mean that you're right. It just means that there's no inner conflict. You can have a band of thieves that enjoy one another and are peaceful, and they're peaceful and wicked at the same time. Uh, Does that make sense? You can't make every decision just based on what you think. So what that means for us 
is that we have to constantly question the path that we're on. Especially if it's easy, especially if we always have peace, especially if all of our decisions and desires overlap at the same time. If I want it and I do it, then we can be sure that we're trusting ourselves. We can be sure that we're living as if our perception is reality, and we can be sure that that road is going to lead us to a dead end. Look look, look at that. Look in the last one. A mocker doesn't love one who corrects him. He will not consult the wise. That when our hearts are set on this self-love, it is self-destructive. Because anybody else that comes in, we're not going to consult them because we're so proud and we're so full of this love for ourselves that any advice that they give Any conflict with the desires that we have, we take it as if they're in conflict with us and not that thing. Have you ever met somebody that it's it's hard to give them advice or to critique them? Or it's hard just to talk about the thing. That what a prideful person does is they make everything about them. So something as small about the thing is, hey, I think you left that in too long. Hey, I think the picture is a little crooked. They get frustrated and they turn it about them. Why are you telling me that? What do you mean? It seems like an indictment on them. Why? Because there's this Self-love, there's this consultation of self. So the Bible is going to warn you and I to be very concerned if you're always at peace with every decision you make and you feel no internal or external conflict because here are the symptoms of self-deception and false peace. Hear them. The symptoms are Restful and peaceful nights. Lots of sleep. Comfort on the front end of every decision that you make. All that you need to contract this disease of self-deception is long periods of time alone and by yourself. And the only antidote is bringing somebody else in. Look at that last one on the page right there. A fool's way is right in his own eyes, but whoever listens to counsel is wise. All that that's saying is this. The person who never thinks they're wrong usually is. So the first thing that we have to do is know that if we're going to make biblical and godly decisions about anything, the first thing that we have to do is learn to check ourselves. We've got to distrust ourselves. We have to entertain the fact that we could be wrong. But it doesn't stop there. This is the inverse of that first one. Not only do we have to check ourselves, but too, we have to wrestle with others. Wrestle with others. I see all the type A folks with their heads down writing. All the rest of us are just looking as if there are no blanks to fill out. Wrestle with others. 
what takes place here is the Bible's going to contrast the wise man with the fool, not based on intellect, but based on an invitation. Who do they invite to speak into their plans? The person who thinks that they're wise is a fool, but the person who knows that they are a fool is wise. So when we're told to wrestle with others, here's what takes place. Look, look at that first proverb. It says this, finalize plans with counsel and wage war with sound guidance. I love the Im Im imagery that's used here to wage war with, with sound guidance because what that means is all right, trusting people is not just saying, what do you think? But it's really putting weight in the counsel that you get. When you take counsel before you're getting ready to go to war and fight for your life, you are trusting somebody else with your life. That's what it is to get counsel. It's not just to ask somebody their thoughts. It's, it's being so distrustful of the motives that you have in your heart that you're saying, me putting my life in somebody else's hands is better than me just keeping my life in my own hands. It doesn't just say that we trust folks with our lives, but those next two, and I put them in green here on the screen so that you can see this point. Without guidance, a people will fall, but with many counselors there is deliverance. Plans fail when there is no counsel, but with many advisors they succeed. That all of this is about the point that's really being driven home is just this, two heads are better than one, three heads are better than two, four heads are better, so on and so forth. Right? God's word counsels us not just against seeking advice on our own, but seeking advice from just one or two folks. That here, this is painted in the language of incentive. If you really want a fuller picture of all the decisions that you have to make, bring in lots of people. Bring in a diverse group of people that can see what you don't see. Have conversations about race and injustice all you want, but bring in a diverse group of people before you talk about any answers. Have the conversations about what job that you should take, but bring in a diverse group of people who know different things ab about you. Because if we find ourselves with the same one or two folks that admire us or look up to us, they'll have the same blind spots about us that we do. But with a group of folks that we invite in, we can be ensured that we're being led towards the right place. Trust others with your life. Many people, not just when you talk about career, but especially, especially when you start talking about dating. Especially when you talk about trying to get to know somebody. That you and them sitting on the phone, going out for dates for hours on ends, for days and months and years, and you interacting with nobody else but them and hearing about them from them is going to lead you to a place where when you want to talk about marriage, you're making a very limited decision. This is the benefit of a community of folks, right? Because you get to see what somebody is like 
when they're mad at somebody that they're comfortable with, which will eventually be you one day. Right? This is, right, it seems like, I'm in sense, it seems like wisdom. Conflict. When you're getting ready to wage war and you feel like I've got to tell somebody about themselves, seek, seek counsel. I cannot tell you how many times people from this church have saved both my life and my marriage when it comes to conflict that me and my wife have and we find ourselves at an impasse and we just can't get past it. And so we bring in many people, single, married, old, young, and they help us work through things, bring in counsel. But here's where the wrestle comes in. Look down here at 12.5. The thoughts of the righteous are just, but guidance from the wicked is deceitful. Wise people want to give advice. But wise people are not the only ones that want to give advice. All advice is not worth taking. Here's where the wrestle comes in. That as we seek counsel and advice and wisdom, that what takes place is the Bible warns us to caution right, uh, uh, against a certain group of folks that we would take advice from, not because it might not work out for us in the way that we hope, but look here at that word. It says, but guidance from the wicked is deceitful. Wicked, those that are described here as wicked, are those that are self-serving. So what that means is that even if they give you advice about what you should do, They aren't the type of people that want to serve anybody else but themselves. So even the advice that they give you is likely aimed to to serve them. And we see it at all levels, right? We see it in cities and how they're planned. And folks at the top that have a desire to come in and to renew places like the southwest side. And it's couched as We want to create opportunity and jobs and all of this stuff. But at the end of the day, it really only serves at times to make the rich more rich and export those that are poor. When I was in college, I had a guy who was a part of our ministry group, and he came to a group of us with a plan of how he was going to help make us all rich selling these cell phones. And he gave us lots of advice on how we should do it. And it ended up to be this big Ponzi scheme. The Bible warns us against, look, look, seeking counsel, but from people that are wicked. In the garden, or not, not, not in the garden, in the wilderness, when Satan came to tempt Jesus. Do you know how he did it? By trying to give him advice. Hey, here's how you can... Get back what was lost in the fall and not have to go to the cross at the same time. I just need you to serve me real quick. The Bible tells us to caution against that. And the way that we do that is sometimes we have to measure the advice that we get by the lives of the advisors that give them. Are they isolated? Are they the type of person that doesn't listen to anybody? Are they the type of person that's always talking 
but never learning? Are they the type of person that doesn't ask questions? Or when they do ask questions, they're always rhetorical questions aimed at trying to make a point. Wrestle with the advice that you get. Run from that kind of advice. And what we learn here is if we're really going to make wise choices and we have to bring other people in, sometimes that means that we'll just have to slow down. And we won't be able to make as quick of a decision as we hoped for. And it'll feel frustrating in the moment, but at the end it'll lead to joy. We have to check ourselves, wrestle with others. Look here at the last verse in that section, 21.5. The plans of the diligent certainly lead to profit, but anyone who is reckless certainly becomes poor. What this is trying to do is it's trying to say there are real consequences to our action. This is not a statement on folks that are poor as if only People that are lazy or reckless are poor. Poverty is more complicated than that. The book of Proverbs is going to address it that sometimes people are poor because the rich uh, oppress the poor. What this is just, just trying to say is, look, there is a real connection in between the way that you make decisions and the actual outcome that you get. However, This last one, we don't just need to check ourselves, we don't just need to wrestle with others, but lastly, we need to rest in God. Although there is a correlation in between what we do and the outcome that we get, what we do is not the only factor in what we get. What we do is not even the major factor in what we get. Do you know who is? God. And these call us to rest in him. Look here at those first Three, a person's heart plans his way. Look, but the Lord determines his steps. The lot is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. A horse is prepared for the day of battle, but victory comes from the Lord, right? Those, the front end are all things that we do, that we plan, but at the end of the day, we can plan all we want, but every outcome is completely determined by God. We can cast lots, right? They, they use that in this time as a way to predict the future, to tell what should be done and what takes place. Is God, not chance or luck or fate, decides the outcome of all that we do. That last one. We can prepare for battle, and we should. We should plan. However, the outcome of everything that we face is 100% in the Lord's hand. Here's what I mean by that. If you're a farmer, if you do not plant seeds, you will not grow a crop. If you do not plant seeds, you will never grow a crop. We like to think, though, all right, so if I don't plant seeds, I'll never grow a crop. So if I do plant seeds and I do it right, I'll always grow a crop. And that's not true. If you do plant seeds and you work hard and you do your best to make the right decisions, you may get a crop. 
things maybe will work out the way that you hoped. Life isn't a formula driven by an impersonal force. It's controlled by a person, God, with an agenda who doesn't have the same limited point of view that we all do. And that's unsettling and confusing. Look there at 2024. Even a courageous person's steps are determined by the Lord. So how can anyone determine his own ways? That last part is just meant to show us. Look, a courageous person, somebody that has it all together and has courage and they're faithful and diligent, they'll plan what to do and they'll do all of the right things. However, they don't understand why God does the things that he does. You can't predict what God's going to do or how he'll do things. And that's what makes things so frustrating. Think of the Bible. Joseph did all of the right things, it seemed like. And he got sold into slavery, falsely accused, sold into jail. And that was the pathway that God used to bring him to rule. Think of Moses. He failed trying to do a good thing and had to be a shepherd for 40 years. And God used that to prepare him. Think of David, who was a shepherd for, uh, at 16 and was an anointed king. And then he spent the next 13 years running for his life. And then God made him king. We read those stories, and in hindsight, God's plans always make sense. But you know, when you're in the midst of God's plans, they never make sense. Isn't it frustrating, right, where you plan and you work and you try to do all these things in the right way and things just don't work out? Best example I got from from my own life is this. In 2007, my wife and I got married. Three months later, it was... February 2008, we were ready to have kids. 2012, after four years of unexplained infertility, we just, seems like we can't have kids on our own. We're ready to adopt. 2012 comes through and goes by, no kids. 2013 comes, no kids. Until we seek the Lord about what we're supposed to do in the next season of our life, and it seems clear that me and Chandra are supposed to go to D.C. for four and a half months. So we make the call to go to D.C. for four and a half months, sure that this is what God would have us to do. And in May of 2013, I get a phone call from a caseworker that says, John, we've got three kids for y'all that are ready to go right now, a three-year-old, a one-year-old, and a newborn. What's up? And we say, well, we're getting ready to go to D.C. this fall. Can we get things done before we go there? No can do. If you leave the state, you cannot get these kids. And we find ourselves in a place where, God, I thought that you told us that this is what you'd have us to do. And now it seems like things are conflicting. So we go to D.C. and then we come back. 2014, the top of the year, hey, those three kids are still there. They got split up. It doesn't work out. Hey, there's these two boys. It doesn't work out. Hey, there's this one girl. Ah, a family member came in and scooped her at the last minute. 2015, we go to Hilton Head just to get away and to relax and refresh. And as we're preparing to go, 
they called us and they said, hey, do you remember that girl a year ago that got scooped up by a family member? Say, yeah. Well, it turns out she lied. She wasn't a family member. This girl is here. Things are good. Y'all are good to go. So Hilton Head, we get there. We spend a week there. And on the Friday that we're supposed to meet her on our way back, they call us on Thursday night at 5 p.m. And our caseworker says she has to stay with her foster parents. It's not good to go. Y'all can't adopt. I got irate. They took me off the case. I'm sorry. And then three days later, I go to Orlando to speak at a conference. And right before I'm getting ready to speak, while I'm at dinner, I get a phone call and find out that my brother died. We drive back home. Church starts. Six weeks later, and we spend the rest of that year, I spend the rest of that year, depressed giving my wife hell just because I don't know how to cope or deal as we try to launch this church. But then in 2017, get a phone call about a baby girl. We drive down and adopt her on the very day that two years ago they called us and told us that we could not adopt. Two years from the day that my brother took his last breath, our baby girl, who was born premature, was taken off her breath machine, and she breathed her first breath. That was on a good Friday. A wonderful story in hindsight. (laughs) Y'all have stories like that. That's what makes it so frustrating that we can do all the right things. And God's control is supposed to make us exhale in relief. But at the end of the day, it doesn't. We're filled with anxiety. How do you and I know that we've really rested in God, that we really trust him, that we can rest in what God has done? How do we know? We know because we won't be hasty in the decisions that we make. We'll wait. How do we know that we've really trusted, that we can really rest, that regardless of what we do, God's going to do the best at the end of the day? How do we know that we're not hesitant, but we can jump even though we don't have all of the details? How do we know? We know that we've really rested in God because when things don't work out, we're not mad, bitter, and angry at him, at ourselves. How do we know that we've really rested in God? Because when things do work out, we're not ungrateful. We look at him as the one that has done all of that. And that's comforting. But that's what makes it so hard, y'all. What makes it so hard is that we have to embrace and sit with, I can do everything right, and it can seem like nothing works out. And do you know what that exposes? The fact that we can't rest in God. It exposes this. That what's more important than the decisions that you make are the desires behind the decisions that drive them. What's more important is not just what you pick. It's, it's, it's why you want it. Why you need it. What's more important than what job that you take is why you want it. Why you need it so bad that you would lie at an interview 
on a resume. Why you want it so bad that anybody that stands in your way, you're frustrated and you want to wage war. What matters more than what house that you buy is why you want that house. And how come when you've done all the things right and you've gotten your credit together and you've done all of what God has asked you to do and you submit an offer, somebody else comes in and snatches it and you can't explain it. Why is that so important to you? Why is it so hard to decide even the small things? What you're going to wear to a party. The clothes that you put on. Because it's not just about the clothes. Why do you... Why do you want, why do you have to have the approval that comes from clothing so bad? Because at the end of the day, the reason why it's so hard is because our decisions are about much more than things. They're about our desires. That for you, it may not just be a house. For you, it's vindication for all the people that said you would never amount to anything. That it may not just be a job. That for you, it's validation, that you're actually worth something. That for you, it's so hard to determine what you're going to wear because it's not just about clothes. It's about your identity and worth and that your self-image is built completely on catching the eyes of the opposite gender. These sleepless nights, anxiety, health issues, all the things that you can't control is because you're not just trying to choose a house, choose a job, choose clothes. You're trying to establish an identity on your job, on your house, on your clothes. You're trying to choose how it is that you're going to build up your self-worth and you feel as if if you don't make the right decision, your entire world will collapse. And that's because in one sense, it's true. It's us trying to build our entire world on these things. That helps to make sense of the anger and self-hate that you feel when you feel like you've made the wrong choice. That helps to make sense of the frustration with people when they stand in your way. That's what helps to make sense of the fact that you feel distant and angry with God all of the time. Because it's not just about a job or a house or clothes. It's about your identity. It's about the fact your desires are conflicting with God's. If your desires are not lined up with God, it's going to create frustration. But desires lead to decisions. And when decisions birth out of conflicting desires conflict, that's what we call war. That's you going to war with somebody. That's all that sin is. Sin is us saying, I have a desire to get something. It conflicts with what God actually does. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to go to war with him and try to beat him into submission. And anybody that goes to war with God fails. Anybody that goes to war with God loses. Anybody that goes to war with God dies. And if you find yourself constantly at war with God, 
you'll still do all of these three things, but in the wrong order. You won't check yourself. You'll rest in yourself because you assume that you know better than God. You won't trust others. You'll check others because they're standing in the way of what's best. How dare you tell me how to live my life? And you won't rest in God. You'll wrestle with him because you feel like I know what I want. I know what's best. You give it to me. And you go to war with God and you'll lose. You'll die. That's why the Bible says the wages of sin is death. Proverbs 16.2, I think here's the key. All a person's ways seem right to him, but the Lord weighs motives. I want you to know this. Here's the good news. The same God that weighs motives can replace motives. The same God that weighs those things can change those things. So what Jesus says, here's how Jesus helps you and I to rest in God. Jesus comes as the true king that's meant to lead us to a kingdom that's much better than the ones that we're trying to build ourselves. You go through the Bible and what you find in the book of Judges. Judges is a book that's full of God's people choosing what they think is right for him, going to war with God and finding nothing but self-destruction. So the book starts off hopeful and it ends hopeless. Here's the last words of the book. And it says this, there was no king in Israel. So everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Everybody did what seemed right to them. Does that sound familiar? They went to war with God and they lost. And then thousands of years later, Jesus comes on the scene. And do you know the first thing that he says when he comes on the scene? It's this Sermon on the Mount where he's proclaiming this new kingdom with new values, a new vision, a place that is available now for everybody that's tired of trying to make these decisions on which they will build their identity and self-worth. And so the first thing that he does is he starts with this prayer and he tells them, look, hey, y'all, I want you to pray that God will change your hearts. So whenever you pray, I want you to start off and say this, God, your kingdom come, your will be done, that if God's kingdom comes, What it does is it'll displace the little kingdom that we're trying to build. He tells us to pray for new desires. Then he tells us to proceed. You know, the scripture that we just read, what he tells us at the end, right, is, look, don't worry. Don't be filled with anxiety about all of these things, food, clothing, where you'll live, what job that you'll take. Because, and we would expect him to say, all right. Jesus, give me three steps to making better decisions, and he doesn't. What he says is, you don't have to worry. Why? Because God cares. You don't have to worry because ultimately, God is absolutely in control, and he cares completely. And he doesn't just tell us this, but he demonstrates it, y'all. Do you remember after living A life where he made every right decision and was not led away once, was not in conflict with God's 
desires once, he finds himself in a garden preparing to die for the ways that we failed God. And as he prays, he says, God, take this cup from me. However, not my will, not my desires, but yours be done. I'm going to submit to you even when my obedience feels like a death sentence, which it actually was for him. So he goes and he shows us that we can rest in God because he raises from the dead. Listen, this is much more than the trite phrase, if God closes a door, he'll open a window. I'm too old for that. My hamstrings don't work like they used to. I don't want to climb out of a window. I don't want to plan B. This is built on the truth that if God closes a casket, he'll raise the dead. That's what Jesus does. That's the beauty of the gospel, that you and I don't have to build our identity on choosing all of these things. But even, even if obedience to God means the death of us, the death of our dreams, of friendships, of jobs, or careers, we serve a God that may close the casket. But it doesn't matter because he raises the dead. I want you to know that you can rest in that. In God's kingdom, you don't have to build an identity on your job, on your looks, on your house, on your clothes. Your identity is one that God cares and loves about, has been secured through Jesus. And the desire that he places in us is to spend all of our lives pointing people towards that kingdom and reminding our hearts of that kingdom. And once our desires are lined up with his, y'all, we're free to make better decisions because we're not desperate for these things. We don't have to have them. That a job is just a job. And if we don't get the one that we hoped, then it's fine because God cares. And he showed his supreme care in his son. That marriage, as beautiful as it is, It's just marriage. That if we spend all of our lives making ourselves the type of person that would be a great spouse and we don't have anybody to choose from or the person that we choose doesn't choose us, our identity is not built on that. Yeah, Christ is the true girl. You and I are free not to need anything because Christ has provided all. And as we're confident that he's provided all, we can live in hope and check ourselves. I don't have to trust me. There's somebody else that can lead much better. And so it's easier for me to put my life in other people's hands who believe this truth because when I forget, they'll remind me. And then I can rest in God. I can take whatever he gives me and I'm free to wait on it or I'm free to jump right in even when I don't have all of the details. Scholar Derek Kidner says this about that last verse. Plan, knowing that God can overturn your plans, 
our plans will be no less our own for being his. They'll just be less burdensome and better made. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that, Lord, we're free uh, to put our lives in the hands of the community that you've provided to us. We're thankful, Lord, that you haven't left us to our own motives, but the motives inside of us that would earn us death and would frustrate our decision-making, you've put to death on the cross through your Son. Thank you for such a wise King in Jesus, Father. As we look to our failures in decision-making, I pray that we wouldn't look at them so long that we forget about the good that Jesus has done for us, Father. So for every one look that we take at ourselves, would you help us to take five looks at our Savior who loved us, who cared for us, who died for us, and who was raised for us. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.